one user will visit a website on their phone and then they'll visit it on their computer. And that one user will get two different experiences. So it's one website, one user, two completely different experiences. But then you want different people who are visiting the same site to have the exact same experience if they're on the same device. And I don't see why that's so important as long as they're having a functional experience. Hello and welcome to the Scrimba podcast. This is a weekly show where your host Alex Booker interviews successful developers for their advice about learning to code and getting your first junior developer job. Today we're bringing you an interview with Kevin Powell that we first published back in May of 2022. Kevin is a CSS evangelist and educator. He makes YouTube videos, streams on Twitch, writes articles, and teaches courses. Kevin has authored some of our most popular modules on CSS, responsive web design, and working with Figma and design systems. His YouTube channel has almost 800,000 subscribers. At the time of this recording, it had half a million. In this episode, you'll learn how to not get frustrated with CSS, how to debug it, and why people struggle with it. You'll also hear how Kevin got into web development in the first place and why he chose to specialize in CSS of all things. You'll also learn about his tools and VS Code plugins and how come that 13 years after CSS 3, we still haven't got CSS 4. If you enjoy this episode, please share it with someone on social media or in your online or offline community. You might even get a shout out in our mid-roll. You're listening to the Scrimba Podcast. Here's Kevin Powell. So I've had a, a bit of a probably different path than most people, just that I sort of accidentally found myself here. I first started with making websites and anything like that back when I was in high school, near the end of high school, which would be the late 90s. So the web was a very different place back then. And it was just mucking around to make silly websites or whatever. I think I, I was part of a Star Wars RPG. So we wanted just like a simple website that would lead to our, our form or whatever it was. A lot of Photoshop and slicing up the Photoshop and then bringing in table-based layouts and mucking around. Nothing serious. But it was one of those things that I would just sort of randomly come back to every now and then. And every time I'd sort of come back, it would be like, oh, things have changed a little bit. Like now we have CSS can do more than it could. We don't use like the center element anymore or the font size and all of that like now we're doing it like this and then so it was always sort of like come back refresh see all the new things that are going on and then not do anything for a while my path through like school and everything i started in the sciences i switched to film i have a degree in film i went to university and got a ba in urban planning uh, so obviously none of that ended up working out after i graduated from university i was working a pretty menial job and i was pretty depressed with the situation and my wife was like, we can get by if you want to go back to school again. So I found a, a pretty short vocational program for design. And the reason I ended up even circling back to that was because all that time that I had spent just mucking around with Photoshop and everything. So it seemed like something that I at least enjoyed doing. So I circled back to that, did that, graduated from there and started working luckily within that. And the job I had was a really good job, but the pay wasn't fantastic. So I started doing freelance work on the side. And a lot of the freelance work I was doing was for like UI design. And at the back of my mind, I was like, oh, if people are paying me to do the design of a UI, maybe they'll also pay me to make the website since I'm giving them a design. 
you know, it's something I've done before. And um, especially when I was back in school, I'd sort of dove back into that side, even though the program didn't really touch on it very much, but I sort of rekindled my my joy of making websites. And that was around the whole CSS3 thing coming out. So it was like this whole new world of everything at the same time, which was pretty exciting. And then, yeah, I, I started doing that on the side a lot. I was having a lot of fun with it. I was doing WordPress development then since it was freelance work. So it was making themes or most of the time um, child themes. So, you know, I had sort of a base theme that I'd have and I'd strip it down or I just delete the CSS file basically and restyle the site. So it would look like what the client needed and muck around a little bit with PHP to, to get some extra functionality and, and little things like that. After a while of doing that, I actually got hired to be a teacher at my old school. And when I went back there, again, it was primarily focused on design, but they added some new web content and they found out I had web experience. So me and one other new teacher got all of the web classes. And that's sort of what is what pushed me from actually making things to teaching web development and all of that. Of course, when that opportunity came up, you were the perfect candidates. It sounded like a match made in heaven. It seems from the outside looking in that you pretty much focus on the CSS and design side of things. How do you feel about that speaking to new developers? Do you think there's room in the industry to just focus on CSS and design? Or do you think it's important to also learn things like, I'm thinking about JavaScript, but also frameworks like React and backend and stuff like that? Yeah, I'd like to tell people that you could all just focus on HTML and CSS and be fine. I don't think it's realistic in today's industry for most people. I do know a few people that focus solely on the CSS side of things. But I think if you want to get into that, you need to be not just like I can throw a website together. It has to be a lot higher level where you're working with design systems. You need to sort of be at that next stage where you're sort of doing a lot of work and taking that away from the JavaScript developers. There's I'm, I don't I can never pronounce his last name, but the person I'm specifically thinking about is Mike. I think it's app, it starts with an A. You can find him as Peruvian Idol uh, on, on Twitch if ever you want to watch some design system stuff with CSS. And he just does design systems and everything there. And like he says, his job is really to write a lot of CSS so the JavaScript developers don't have to. And the value there is it saves them time because it's not what they're comfortable with. So, you know, he can save the company a lot of money than a bunch of people working on something they're not comfortable with. But I think in general, a good knowledge of JavaScript is important for most people. So if you're looking to break into the industry, if you want to be available for the most jobs possible, having a good understanding there, I think is a, an important thing to have. That said, I do think that understanding and a good knowledge of HTML and CSS is still really important and sometimes gets overlooked and it can be overlooked by people learning, but it can also be overlooked by companies when they're hiring and stuff. It's one of those things that's what the, the user is directly interacting with. The JavaScript might be putting in the functionality, but you know what the person sees is the HTML and the CSS on the page. So I think a good understanding of all three is important. If you are to focus on CSS, it really is like a speciality. You're solving something very specific for teams. Like it's not uncommon for companies' projects to evolve year over year. And at one point they have so much technical debt, essentially, they can no longer move quickly and innovate with the competition or release the features they want. And I guess this is where design systems come in. But sometimes you need somebody with that experience who's done it before to help guide them. But maybe instead of just like coming out of the gate and saying, oh, I'm going to be that person, you know, 
and maybe start off a bit more well-rounded and then figure out what it is exactly you enjoy the most and if it happens to be CSS or something. As it sounds like it was in your case, like tell me a bit about this CSS evangelist sort of title that I sometimes see you describe that. It sounds like a, a wicked purpose, by the way. You kind of build things that help people build things, right? Or you teach people how to build things. I think that's a really cool purpose. But this, this CSS evangelist term, like what does it mean to you? It's a little bit like I said, where a lot of people don't appreciate CSS as much as JavaScript. I guess there's two different ways of seeing that. There's some people that are coming from more of a computer science background that run into CSS and then they just get frustrated by it and they see it as a frustrating language that doesn't work the way it should. And there's, you know, new people that are coming in that, you know, get the advice to sort of focus more on, on JavaScript. And so what I want to do is show people that CSS is fun, that it makes sense and that it's different, but just because it's different doesn't mean it's bad. You just have to sort of figure out how it works and understand how it works. After you do that and you put a bit of a time investment into it, it can be a ton of fun. And I think part of the reason I was even drawn to it in the first place is because I did have a bit more of the design. Well, I mean, I was doing it before I got into the design side of things too, but it is obviously the language of design itself because it makes the design show up on the page or on the screen. And so, you know, it is a bit of tinkering and a bit of playing with and trying to get things to work. And it's a lot less absolute. Miriam Susan has a really good talk about why CSS is so weird. And it's just talking about how compared to other languages, it's a language that deals with unknowns, right? You don't know the size of the person's screen. You don't know the pixel density of their screen. You don't know the color gamut of their screen. You don't know, even if they're on a big screen, is their browser, to, you know, how big is the viewport and everything? And are they using a mouse? Are they using a touch device? Are they interacting with a keyboard? Like there's all these things you don't know. I think that's why people get frustrated by it. You're sort of dealing with all these unknowns. It can be really strange and difficult. So I think me, the whole CSS evangelist idea is just to show people that once you sort of get your mind into that frame of mind, it's actually a lot of fun and, and we can we can all enjoy it and do something cool with it. Why do you think it is that just so many people struggle with it? I think part of it is there are a lot of unknowns. So that's frustrating. When I started, you know, I take a Photoshop document that was a set size, you slice it up and then you just sort of make it happen at that specific size. I mean, it had its own difficulties with table-based layouts, but until we had to worry about responsive designs, you were just literally taking a Photoshop file and making it work. And you didn't have to worry about anything. You set everything, absolute values, and you could make it work. And now there's responsiveness. So you start figuring things out and then you realize it breaks at big screens or it breaks at small screens. So that's frustrating because it's not working the way you intended it to. And then if you don't know all the tools we have at our disposal, then it can be actually pretty hard to fix. Or you might have a ton of code that you need to delete and start that over again. And that can be frustrating. So I think that's a large part of it. And I also just think that because it's such a simple language at its core, like it's a declarative language, color, blue, background, red, it sort of tricks us into thinking it's a very simple language because that's the first things you learn usually is to set the font color, set a background color, maybe set a width on something. But like you learn the very basics and you go, oh, this is easy. I can, I can do this. But there's actually a lot more to it, um, whether it's things like the Flexbox algorithm or just like the page layout algorithms. They're actually really complex in what the browser is doing behind the scenes to get things to work, understanding the formatting context and stacking context and all these things that are there that are talked about a little bit less. So you're not always aware of them and the implications they have. So you just run into these dead ends that you get frustrated with just because you didn't even know that that was a limitation or that was something that you had to worry about. When you're coming in those situations, you can easily see why it can be so frustrating. Coming up, what's the deal with CSS4? There'll probably, maybe, never be a CSS4. 
Kevin and Alex will be right back. But first, let's take a look at some of your social media posts about the podcast. Johnny at Johnny Dev on Twitter says, When you get to a certain point in your career, you just stop caring about what other people say and go for it. A quote by Cassidy Williams on the Scrimba podcast. The interview with Cassidy is one of my all-time favorite interviews on this podcast. And we were actually thinking about rebroadcasting it today. So I am really happy that people are still discovering that episode. It's really good. I'm going to link it in the show notes. And who knows, next time we're running a rerun, that's probably going to be the one as far as I'm concerned. Stamp at JNTE tweeted at Katrina Tucker, who was on the show last Tuesday and said, I listened to your Scrimba podcast and man, the gems. It was a great episode. If you haven't heard it yet, what you waiting for? Cue it up after this one. And over on LinkedIn, Cassie Lewis shared another list of podcasts that included ours. So they say, for Social Saturday, it's podcast time. All of these podcasts are fire if you want some motivation on your coding journey. The Scrimba and Code Newbie podcasts are full of stories about people transitioning to tech, people seasoned in tech, and tech info. Looney Engineering has lots of great info for juniors seeking their first job or even working in their first role. And I finally got to catch an episode of Self-Taught Devs and I'm pretty sure they're going to take over the world. And in the comments, Michael said, I listen to Scrimba kind of religiously at this point. Awesome, that's great to hear. And thank you, Cassie, for including us on your list. It means we're probably doing something right. But also every time I read one of these, I discover a podcast I had no idea existed. So that's also cool. Let's exchange our listening recommendations more often. If you'd like to get a shout out on the show, the only thing you need to do is to talk about it on social media. You can share a takeaway, you can link up with our guests, or you can get the show in front of someone who could also get value from it. And now we're back to the interview with Kevin Powell. I think one thing people struggle with compared to JavaScript a little bit and other um, what we might call traditional imperative programming languages is that there is a degree of sort of um, the fancy word I think is static analysis where if you write the code in VS Code sometimes it will predict that it's not going to work before you run it and then when you do run it and there's an error assuming it's not a logic error or something you have a call stack and some hints about where to go next but with CSS you open your browser and you're like huh? And I think that's one of those things that people see as a problem with CSS, whereas really it's, I mean, a big part of, of HTML and CSS is making sure that the information gets there and that the user has something. So that's why it doesn't fail, right? That property will fail, but in failing, it just means it doesn't work and it's not being applied. It's even like that, you know, the, the classic CSS is awesome meme with the awesome overflowing out the side. And obviously people hate that. Yeah. Or that mug with the CSS kind of coming out of the side of the mug. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's frustrating when you have overflows and stuff, but that's CSS trying not to have information disappear. There's I can't remember what site it is. There's a site that I, I go on quite often because I think it shows up in my feed on my phone for like news articles and stuff. And they mucked up something with their iframes. And at first I thought it was like this one time, but it's just this recurring thing where there's ads that are in the middle of an article and the ad will cover text. Like, I think it's the first line of text in the next paragraph or something. And you just have no idea because it's, you know, a line of text is missing and you just have a set the middle of a sentence. Um, and like naturally, or, you know, that's what CSS is trying to prevent by allowing overflows. So if you do make a mistake that 
well, the user can still access that content and stuff. And it's the same thing when if you try putting, you know, width purple, it doesn't break your site. It just doesn't apply the width purple because it doesn't make sense. So, but it, like you said, it's really frustrating when you're trying to find these problems. And that's the debugging experience of CSS is very different from the debugging experience of, of other languages for sure. If you start writing CSS in like Notepad or something, or maybe VS Code without any extensions, and you never right-click inspect element and dig deeper into the development console, you are probably going to have a very frustrating experience because you're not using the tools available to you. And that's okay, probably you just haven't learned about them yet. So I wanted to ask you, Kevin, are there any sorts of go-to tools or techniques you use when you're writing CSS to make the development experience more enjoyable? So definitely a lot of dev tools. For people that are writing CSS, I'd still recommend the Firefox dev tools over Chrome's. Contentious. Chrome's dev tools have improved a lot. They have like their grid inspector and inflex inspector now, which are really good. Even though I still prefer Firefox's just because the labeling is a little bit more clear. There's a lot of good things in the Chrome ones, but for the, the reason I'd suggest it, especially if you're early on with your CSS, is if you try doing, let's just say you do a justified content center and it's not working and you can't figure out why, in Chrome, it just shows you that you've applied it and it's a valid property, so there's nothing wrong with it. In Firefox, it'll gray it out and it puts a little tooltip next to it and it'll tell you that this is a valid property, but it's not working because the parent or because you haven't declared display flex. Wow. So any of those situations where you have like a property that relies on a different context being applied, so display grid, display flex, uh, columns, other things like that, Firefox actually says like, yeah, this is fine, but here's why it's not working, which I think is super, super helpful. Even finding typos and stuff like that, because a lot of time like you do background whatever and it doesn't work and you're sort of pulling your hair out. And I've been there with the stupidest things. Um, but, you know, typos are a big thing. In VS Code, you can get your, it has sometimes it'll highlight it when you make some, but opening it up in the dev tools and then just seeing that it's crossed out and it's saying it's an invalid property. And you're like, wait, what? And then you look and you're like, oh yeah, I spelled background with a KC instead of a CK or whatever. Take it for me as a Briton, like misspelling color, you know, the British way and so on. Yeah. I'm in Canada, so we we, do, we have the same thing. Oh. I've been I've been there, yeah. <laughs> do you use any sort of extensions within your editor? Specific to CSS, I can't think of something off the top of my head that I use, actually. I have this feeling that CSS is inherently quite hard to build extensions for because you can't really predict what it's going to do until you're in the browser. I think the name stands for cascading style sheets, right? And this idea that your styles are always being inherited. It's quite difficult, I think, within an editor to build up all the context about what exactly is happening because you have no notion of like the browser's default CSS. Or if you're referencing a reset CSS, for example, it might be hard to predict. And, and so maybe the right attitude is just to use Firefox in this case and, and see what it can tell you about what's happening. Yeah. And even like you said, like say you have you, you might have one class that's doing your display flex and a different class that's setting the alignment or it's an aligned self or whatever it is. So like our editor doesn't know these relationships that you're building within the CSS and how you're using all of your different classes. So yeah, the main linters I know people use, or I don't know if it's considered linting, but there's ones that when you save, it can reorder the properties. So some people like alphabetical or you can get ones. I did a video on how I like to organize mine. And then a few people in the comments were saying, oh, I, I have an extension that will do it sort of, you know, it group all the positioning properties. So like position top, bottom, left, right, it group the display or background with margin and padding type of thing. So you can write really messy CSS, hit save, and then it uh, reorder it. And the nice thing with those is then if you've written width two times, 
it is stick them together and you see them right away if it's on the same selector, of course. But at least then you don't run into those issues where you've put the same property two times and you're trying to figure out why one of them is not working. And it's because you have it five lines lower down doing something different, which I still do to this day. And it's I have been there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not quite the same thing, but I remember learning Adobe Premiere, for example, and I went in there and I got super frustrated because I kept pressing the wrong keyboard shortcuts or the cursor kept changing to some icon I didn't recognize. And I was getting annoyed and I was like, oh, this should be easier. And I took a step back and I realized this is a professional tool. Like they've edited movies on this that we've seen in the cinemas. Like, why should I assume that I can learn it in a day or two? And I went back and I learned all the fundamentals. And I think with CSS, sometimes we fall into a similar trap and it, it might be to do with that sort of Dunning-Kruger effect thing where at first it might seem so easy, but understanding things like how precedence works, either with selectors, whether a class is selected before an ID or for a pseudo selector, for example, and then understanding in what order properties are interpreted and things, these sort of fundamental things, you're not going to see the impact of them right away. They're not going to make your website look better overnight but they will build you up as a developer. So when you run into these issues, and I think this echoes your experience today, Kevin, where you've built so much experience, you're like, you know, you have a suspicion, don't you? Like, oh, maybe that that was wrong. And then, you know, you bring in some tools to just make it more obvious. 100%. And the more experience you get with CSS, the more you start realizing the mistakes are usually the same things popping their head up. Like you come up with this like mental checklist of like, is there a typo? Is something else overriding that for some reason? And like our dev tools can help us find those things. But you sort of start seeing like 90% of the mistakes are these really silly ones a lot of the time. And you sort of catch them a lot quicker. I do think what you're saying though is 100% spot on. And I think it's one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I'm not sure the best approach to it. Because we learn about things like the box model and inheritance and the cascade generalities with it. And you learn those like day one, and then you never really go back to it. It's this big information dump on fundamental things, but you're learning all those things. You're learning how the properties work. You're learning all the properties because there's so many properties to learn. There's no way that like that one early dump of information just all sunk in there and you really understand it. It's just you have this general idea that it exists. And so that's one thing I am thinking about is like, how can I frame looking at these things again later on to someone and being like, no, you should go back to the box model because maybe you don't understand this part about it. Or there's things that you don't hear a lot about, like formatting contexts where like you have the regular block and in, like you have display block, display inline, we have display grid, but like what are those actually doing and what's the effect? Because then you have in a regular formatting context, you have collapsing margins. So the bottom margin of one thing will collapse into the top margin of another thing and they sort of combine into one margin. Or even the most frustrating thing is if you have a child inside a parent and you add margin top to the child, it could potentially push down the parent. And that's counterintuitive. It's really weird. But once you know that's a thing, you know why it's happening. But then a lot of these behaviors also change if you use flex or grid. And that, again, becomes frustrating because people don't really understand why things are different in different situations and stuff. And trying to revisit a lot of those core concepts and a lot of those basic things, once you have a little bit of experience and you're sort of getting comfortable with the different things you are doing is really important. So you actually have a better understanding of why things are happening the way they are. This is all very good and well, Kevin, but please tell us. Why does my CSS work in one browser, but not the other one? <laughs> one thing I will say to anyone who, who complains about browser compatibility today hasn't been writing code for too long because it's a lot better now than it was even 
five years ago, and it was better five years ago than it was earlier than that. I mean, at one point we had competing specs on what, like how to style browsers. You know, it was actually Internet Explorer that made CSS a thing because Firefox, or at the time it would have been Netscape, was working on a different thing. So like things have been a lot more difficult. And then that that was kind of funny because Internet Explorer got us there, but then it was the one that caused us the most trouble long-term when we had to deal with like IE6 and stuff. But yeah, so I think it's gotten a lot better. The biggest thing now is the speed of development of CSS has taken off recently. It's a really fun time to be in my position where I'm teaching people because there's all these new things to talk about, which if I'd started doing all of this like eight years ago, there was just this long period of stagnation. Even before CSS3, there was years of nothing. Then we had a whole bunch of new stuff and then we had a long time of nothing again, except other than grid really and these little things that would come up. But right now there's so much coming. And I was a little bit concerned actually at one point last year because I was seeing Safari was working on this, Chrome was working on this other thing, Firefox is working on implementing this other thing. And so I was like, we have all these new things coming, but if the browsers aren't aligning on which one they're supporting first, we're just going to have this like ecosystem where we can't actually use any of them because every browser is supporting different stuff. But it does seem like there is some alignment that's coming around, which is good to see. One of the big things now is just CSS is growing up very quickly. There's a lot of new things coming and you do have to be careful to make sure that, you know, it's great when you hear me talk about it on, on my YouTube channel or I, I tweet about it or whatever it is, but do make sure that it's something that's supported by all the browsers. There's ways of also dealing with things like that. But I think another thing that's really important to think about with the web in general is, is it a problem if they don't all look the same? And if you're working for a client or a boss that's telling you, no, they have to look identical, obviously that it's a little bit harder to say, no, no, it's fine when you know the person paying your bills is t telling you otherwise. But it's one of those things that for me, I've always found really strange because one user will visit a website on their phone and then they'll visit the same website on their computer. And that one user will get two different experiences because it's a different layout. It might, the menu is probably different. Like it's not the same at all. One's a touch interface, one's using the mouse. So there's different interactions. So it's one website, one user, two completely different experiences. But then you want every single user, different people who are visiting the same site to have the exact same experience if they're on the same device. And I don't see why that's so important as long as they're having a functional experience. So even when it comes to like supporting Internet Explorer now, which, you know, a lot of the big companies are not worrying about Internet Explorer anymore. But, you know, if you have an e-commerce place or something, you can't always say like, oh, it's only, you know, 2% of our revenue. Who cares? It's still 2% of your revenue. But to me, the site needs to work for them. It doesn't need to be exactly the same thing with all the bells and whistles that someone else is getting to. And I think that's where the idea of like progressive enhancements come in and all of that. There's all this new stuff coming. We can use it, but just make sure that if the browser doesn't support it, that it doesn't break the site for them. And as long as it's not breaking it, they can still use it. For me, I don't see the issue with that. But again, it's not always easy to convince your boss or your client of the same thing. So it's easy for me to say this, but I do hope that over time we can get that attitude to shift a little bit because the whole idea of pixel perfect on something like, I think that should be like a banned word or something like it doesn't exist. It's never going to exist again. It's kind of the past, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like maybe in the nineties, early two thousands, designing in Photoshop and then getting a developer to turn it into a website was all the rage. But obviously back then it was a lot slower to build a website. So you wanted to nail the design first. These days you can do quite rapid iteration. In fact, arguably you could tweak an element quicker in CSS than you could in Figma or Photoshop. At least some designers and developers I've worked with 
with have subscribed to that philosophy. But just on the subject of progressive enhancement, as I will jump on the opportunity to teach people listening about it, because it's one of my ideals of the web, it's this idea, right, that even if you strip everything back to the HTML, essentially, it should still semantically look and feel like a real website. Like even if your JavaScript can't load because you have a slow internet connection, or even if the images can't load, there should still be that alt text. There should still ideally be that, um, you know, ability to submit a form using just a form with the post method and no asynchronous job. The, the thing is like, this is a nice ideal and it helps in a lot of ways such as, you know, accessibility. And if you're in a rural area with slow internet and actually when your website breaks, which it probably will at some point, it doesn't break as bad because at least it's got the bones, right? The structures, right? And arguably it's good for things like SEO and stuff as well, but probably not really because Google is so used to people not building their websites in that way, but they learned how to actually figure out the true structure and intention. So there's less motivation even to, to sort of write semantic HTML and things. Um, so yes, it's a nice ideal, but, and I want to see if you agree, I feel like in practice in the real world, like it doesn't actually exist. <laughs> like it's quite hard to find in the real world because it seems to come at the cost of productivity in a sense. Like it's quicker just to kind of band-aid it together. It's quite a difficult use case to make to your team or your boss and say, hey, I think we should really take it back to the bones and make sure it works because they're probably more focused on delivering a feature, right? I think what you said is 100% spot on. And you, especially like I hear this, it just circling back to the SEO for a second, because I've, I've been championing a lot more accessibility lately. And the amount of times that like I see replies about, oh, that's also great for like SEO purposes and stuff. And I'm like, well, that's, that's not why I'm talking about it. I'm talking about it to make sure that everybody who's visiting your site can actually you know, use your site. And if that does give an SEO benefit, then that's like a really nice bonus. And maybe that's how you can justify it to your boss. But I think it's the same thing, which is general accessibility and with progressive enhancement. It's one of those things that if you're trying to do it after the fact, it's a lot of work. Whereas if you take an approach from the beginning of wanting to go with that route, you incur a lot less technical debt and you can make something probably without that much more work as long as you're thinking about it from the beginning uh, rather than doing it after the fact. It can be hard to justify if you're working on a team where you're doing your weekly or bi-weekly sprints or something and something needs to get shipped and you're on a tight deadline. So I think that's why often it actually does get pushed to the side. But again, it raises the risk of having this extra technical debt that then has to be circled back to and ends up being three times as much work. So I guess it depends on the situation. Obviously, people are in and everything. But I think when you have the opportunity to go into it with these things front of mind, rather than it being this thing that we have to bake in after the fact, it turns out not to be that bad. And there's lots of solutions out there that exist for most of the problems you have to build. So any part of it, like you said, just having a form that can work just because it works without having to rely on async JavaScript or, you know, using buttons for what buttons are made for and using form elements for what they're made for. And like, there's so many simple, simple, simple wins that people don't use because they end up trying to customize something that already exists and they're, you know, trying to reinvent the wheel sometimes. So in certain situations, it's actually more work than it could have been if you just did things from the beginning. But there's lots of design patterns and there's lots of things that exist out there already. You don't have to do it from scratch. You can find, you know, progressively enhanced basically anything you want these days and then just sort of tweak it to what you need it to do for your use case. And again, I understand why it happens 100% because it's one of those things me as an educator, it's really easy to talk about the benefits of it and and how to, you know, this is how you can do it and everything, but it's very different when you are under the stress of a deadline. 
uh, and all of that. So I do understand that side of things too. I just wanted to circle back ever so quickly to what you were saying before about, you, you know, you sort of mentioned CSS1, CSS2, CSS3, and we were also talking about how different web browsers have to implement CSS in a sense. I think what we're kind of talking about is like a CSS standard or specification where, as I understand it, a committee of, you know, very smart and very experienced people try and achieve a consensus about what new features should be added to CSS. And then in order to bring that to reality, they have to describe in a standard, which is just written text, really, what exactly that interface is going to look like, such as the spelling of the property, how it relates to other properties, what values are acceptable. And they really have to be as detailed as possible about what the expected behavior is. And then different browser implementers, we're talking about the web engines, like I guess it's Chromium and Chrome, and I forget, it's not Gecko anymore in Firefox, is it? They have some kind of web engine, I suppose. And then it's up to those developers to then build the CSS language in their specific browser. And this, I think, over the years is where a lot of confusion happened because uh, we were talking about Internet Explorer going rogue. Well, they had different ideas about what should be in CSS compared to Firefox and Google. And that was a problem because it would work in Internet Explorer, but Google would use a completely different sort of value or something like that. And then even when it comes to implementation, like I don't know if that margin top thing you were talking about is considered a feature or a bug. <laughs> Maybe it could be interpreted in different ways in different browsers. And that's where things get um, a bit confusing. But the question I have for you is, you know, I did a bit of research and it looks to me like CSS1 was released in, I think, 1996, CSS2 a few years later in 1998. Do you remember what sort of timeline CSS3 came out? Was it like the early 2000s or something when it first became a thing? That sounds right. I know it was a really, really long gap. And even from when it became a thing to when it was implemented was also a long journey. Good point. Yeah. I don't remember when it officially hit, but it was it was like, here's a bunch of new stuff and you can sort of use them for a long time. That was an interesting time. And that was also the beginning of the prefixes. Oh, I remember those. Yeah. Luckily, that's mostly becoming a thing of the past, even though for a few things, we still need them. If for anyone who doesn't know, prefixes was when you had, I can't even, I remember border radius, you had to do it. So you had like for every rendering engine, so pretty much every different browser, they didn't really follow the official spec when they started putting in browser uh, border radius, but they all wanted to have it. So they all prefixed it. So it would be like hyphen Moz hyphen border radius, hyphen MS hyphen border radius. You had O for Opera and like you had five different ones really. If you look at the old CSS gradient generators, the code they would spit out to work in all the browsers was insane just because it was the same thing over and over and over with all the prefixes. Of course, then we got like auto prefixer, which saved us on that. But that was because they all were trying to implement these things for CSS3, but it wasn't officially up to the spec. So they wanted to prefix it just to make sure that like until we get this working officially properly we're going to prefix it because this is our own interpretation of it and that existed for a lot of stuff for a long time and then slowly as they sort of standardized everything and they all followed what the spec was actually saying at least that's how i understand it that's when the prefixes started disappearing which we're all happy about now there's a few things that only work with prefixes because they they're not things that are actually part of the spec one of the things is if you want a custom scroll bar Chromium has their own implementation versus the Firefox uses the official spec, but Chromium doesn't. And Chromium uses the WebKit one, which will also work for Safari. But yeah, they, they sort of went rogue and did their own thing. So that's why they prefix it and they do their own things on that. So if a browser sort of does something that's not part of the official spec, that's when a prefix might still exist. There's one for text outline or something like that too, that they all use. We're like 10, 15 years, maybe even 20 years later now. 
Where is CSS4? <laughs> so they'll probably maybe never be a CSS4. One of the reasons CSS3 took so long to happen was because up until then, every like when there would be an upgrade on it, they needed to just do like, okay, we've added these things. So we need to finish the spec on all these new things before we can publish this new CSS3. And CSS3 added lots of stuff. So it took a really long time to agree on everything to then officially, okay, like we've done these 35 different things that we wanted to update that are all done. We can ship that. They realized that was a problem. So when CSS3, and this is the same with HTML5, They've both taken this uh, more organic approach now where everything's split off into its own spec. So you have like a layout spec, you have a text spec. So everything's on its own one. Like grid has its own spec and it's at level one. Whereas color, I think we're at, we're reaching up to color level five now. So everything is on its own level so they can be updated independently. And that's one of the reasons that CSS is now growing, I think, at a much faster pace. Because if we want to introduce new color functions, well, we only need to agree on, okay, here's the new color syntax and here's the new color properties or values we're going to have. That's good. Perfect. Ship that. Don't worry about anything else. And so everything can grow independently of the other stuff. There's a few people that do think we should have in name only a CSS4. Yeah, like a checkpoint. Exactly. Because CSS3 was, it was a really good marketing push, really. It was, here's a whole bunch of these new exciting things that have just landed. Check them all out. It got people excited about CSS again. There's some people saying we should do this now just to sort of let people know, look at all this new stuff that's here in CSS. Because, you know, we have container queries on the way. We have layers now, scopings on the way, nestings on the way all these completely new things coming. So is it worth celebrating and doing something just to sort of let everybody know who doesn't have their ear to the ground, that there's all these new things that are here and get people talking about it. You know, is important. Like it helps developers um, know what they can adopt and push the web forward. I've started to poke my, my head in a lot more on some of the developing specs to keep an eye on them and see what's happening. Because I mean, you could look at all of them. Um, there's just pretty much a GitHub repo for everything that's sort of in the way. So like I follow container queries from the very beginning. So I'm sort of seeing the process a little bit more at this point and following along because I mean, anybody can sort of officially propose something. If you have an idea for how something should be done, or there's something in CSS that you think would be a cool addition, you can start talking to people and it's a very formal sort of way to actually put in a proposal. You can't just say, hey, add this in. But there's even like, you can follow conversations that sort of start that way of saying like, here's like a problem I currently have. There's no current solution to it. Here's some ideas I have to how it would work, how things could evolve from here. And it starts a conversation going of like, well, that wouldn't work because of this, or maybe the naming of it would have to be this, or what would the scope be? But it, the ideas start going on. And then from that, then it can make more progress and eventually actually turn into an official proposal. And then that goes through all the stages of once it's a proposal, it sort of follows on from there. So yeah, I've sort of been more curious about that side of things. So I've been, you know, lurking mostly, A, to keep like an ear to the ground of things that are on the way, but more in terms of seeing the process play out and maybe if ever voicing some opinion at one point or another, but I haven't got to that point yet. Completely understandable. It's a very like rigorous process, isn't it? It's sometimes difficult to join the conversation once it's already started because there's so much kind of context around it. And, you know, it's understandable that there should be a lot of friction almost. Or I suppose it's a difficult balance because there should be enough friction that you really have to think this through. Because if you add too much too fast, it's going to become uh, a bit organic and messy and bloated. Um, and you really want to consider like what is the actual problem this solves and are we solving it in the best way? 
way. And I, but that is the cool thing about open source. And, and one thing I love about the web is just a lot of the times with these proposals, people will create, I, I'm a bit more involved in JavaScript than CSS, I have to say, but they will create things like a polyfill or a Babel plugin that demonstrates a little sample of what this could be. It kind of gets the imagination going and makes it easier to like have a discussion. No one listening has to worry about this at all, but it's super fun to know that like this is how the web gets made at a fundamental level. Anyway, Kevin, just to wrap things up, how do you feel about some fun, quickfire questions? Yeah, definitely. Your favorite thing about CSS? Oh my goodness, that's, I don't know if I can do that as a quickfire one. Uh, I'll just say grid in general. I really like layout in general, and I think grid solved a lot of the problems that I was after and makes my life a lot easier. No more tables or floats left. Okay. Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> what about your least favorite thing in CSS? Something that just you think, oh, this should be more intuitive. Definitely collapsing margins that we were talking about before. They shouldn't have been a thing. We have to live with them now that they're here, but 100%, if we could do away with them, I'd be very happy. And that's why there's this rigorous process for new features. So that doesn't happen again, I assume. What about design trends? What is one design trend you see emerging that you're excited to see more of on the web. Ooh, I don't know. I find a lot of the trends I don't get behind and then they disappear. So That's okay. Parallax scrolling and scroll jacking was a trend for a bit, mind you, so they're not all good. But even like I see like things like glass morphism and some other things, but I think to keep it short, I think what's cool with the trends is like this new thing comes, people go overboard with it because it's this new thing and then it sort of fades off, but you keep these little fun things with it. So even like parallax scrolling and less so scroll jacking, but like if it's done in subtle ways that maybe isn't a bad thing or could be like a nice little touch or the glass morphism I've seen used in like clever ways, but very like subdued ways and not like here's my entire site that has these weird layering and blurs and everything going on. But yeah, I can't think of any current upcoming ones that I'm super excited about. A lot of people regard you as sort of a go-to person for help and advice and information about CSS, which kind of makes me wonder, like, who do you go to for advice and information about CSS? There's a few blogs and newsletters and a whole bunch of people on Twitter that I follow. Anyone we can link? I'm going to forget people for sure, but I've mentioned Miriam Susan already. There's Miriam Susan, Adam Argyle, and Una Kravitz, who are at Chrome. They're CSS advocates at Chrome. Stephanie Eccles. Stephanie's awesome on Twitter. She also has a blog, ModernCSS.dev, uh, which is fantastic looking at modern solutions of stuff. She has a Twitch as well that she, she does some stuff on sometimes. Uh, man, I feel bad for the people I'm forgetting off the top of my head. We can always link people in the show notes. A few more quick fire questions. We would love to learn a bit more just about you, Kevin. Let me ask you, what do you prefer, coffee or tea? Coffee, definitely. What is your favorite TV show or series that you've watched recently? That one's not so easy. I can't think of a good one that I've watched. I've watched a few that I've been disappointed in. The last one I guess I really got into is The Mandalorian, but that's been a little bit now. There's been a few others that I'm watching lately, but it's just sort of like, oh, I have some spare time. I'm not going out of my way to watch them. Finally, and this is a very personal question, Kevin, I hope you don't mind my asking, but do you prefer tabs or spaces? I, I personally have mine. I mean, I use a I set it for two spaces, so I hit tab, it does two spaces. Um, I've heard a lot of arguments for four being more accessible just because it's more clear, but I like two spaces as my, <laughs> my default. Good to know. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me on the Screamer podcast. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. It's been a lot of fun. That was the Scrimba Podcast. If you made it this far, please subscribe. You can find the show wherever you get your podcasts. On this podcast, we alternate between industry experts like Kevin and recently hired new developers. I'm deliberately avoiding to say junior who share their stories so you can learn from both sides. 
Next week, we're talking to Jess Gilbert. I went on to a degree in education with a master's in teaching. And that's how I ended up initially as a primary teacher, which I worked for the last five years as. It was kind of getting to the point that I was feeling quite burnt out. I was a bit disillusioned with the education system. At the point where I decided to leave teaching, I was kind of looking for jobs that I could go into with the skills that I already had. Um, that proved really difficult. It was at that point that I saw an advert for the Code for Skittles data and SQL course. I thought if I did it, it might help with some of the kind of more admin based roles that I'd been applying for. Tune in next Tuesday to find out what happened next. Spoiler alert, it is a success story. In the meantime, check out the show notes for resources. You can also find Alex's Twitter handle there if you want to tweet at him directly. I've been Jan, the producer. Enjoy your day and see you soon, either here or on Twitter. Bye. <laughs>